Ben Pierce, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. It's a joy to have you on the show. I'm super excited because you're an astrobiologist, aren't you? Indeed. Yes. That's cool. I mean, already, I, I think I think people are thinking you're pretty cool just by that name. <laughs> well, that's pretty that's pretty great. Yeah, a lot of people don't really know what it is because uh, it's kind of like two terms put together, and uh, and and oddly enough, it uh, it's not really what people think it is when they you know when they kind of come up with the definition on their own. Okay, so, why don't uh, you explain it for me? Yeah, so uh, astrobiology is really the study of the origins, evolution, search, and distribution of life in the universe. Um, and because we only have the example of, of life on Earth as it stands, uh, it's a lot of it is trying to figure out how life emerged on Earth. And uh, a big portion of it is searching for life on other worlds uh, in our solar system. So say on Venus or Mars and, and also on exoplanets and other solar systems uh, in the galaxy. Very cool. No, I still think you're you're in the cool books after that description. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, before we start talking about the science, though, and I have a ton of science questions just out of my own curiosity. Yeah. I, I do know a few things about you. I know that you originally started working. You were not a scientist. You were a software engineer, correct? Yes, that's right. I started... Yeah. Uh, Started off with a completely different career, and then uh, and then found my way to to my passion kind of later on in life. So, I'm so. What did you do as a software engineer? Did you work for a startup? Did you work for government? What was your job? Uh, I worked for a few different companies. Um, I worked as a as an intern at a uh, information uh, identity management software company. And then my probably my longest job as a software engineer was uh, at a actually an oil company. Uh, working on oil software to give to geologists so that they could kind of figure out where where to drill um, and stuff like that. And okay, I also, so, yeah. no, go ahead, please. Yeah, and then my 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 only other software engineering job was uh, was actually in Germany, and uh, and that was a testing job. So I was kind of trying to break uh, e-reader software uh, so that you know it didn't break when the customer had it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I actually I come from the software quality assurance world. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. So I can totally 100% relate to you because I've been in IT and software for about 20 years. I just lost my job about a month ago. Oh, and bummer. it's, um, it is a bummer. But it's interesting because there's a reinvention process in place now for myself. So mm. when I heard that you're from the software world, and you went into science, I was like, Oh, this is cool, because I can totally relate to this guy. And I think, you know, I'm not the only one. I think a lot of people in the software industry are reevaluating that line of work. Mm -hmm. uh, what made you reevaluate your your career? Yeah, I I guess it was it kind of was a long time coming. I I didn't go through my undergraduate degree in software. I kind of never really uh, I never really loved it to be honest. I I could do it um, and I was I was okay at it. But when it came to working, I thought, okay, well, when I get out into, you know, the business world, into the IT world, it'll be different than classes. You know, it'll be work, it'll be fun. It, I'll, I'll, I'll find my passion there. Uh, but that kind of never really happened, and and uh, it was actually the oil company I was working for that was uh, kind of the biggest issue for me because I, you know, I, I kind of consider myself an environmentalist, and here I am working for an oil company, 
uh, and it just kind of, I was just kind of conflicted by that. And I think after about a year and a half of doing that, I just, I just felt like I needed something more. Like I needed something that I could be passionate about, something that I could really sink my teeth into. And I just knew I wouldn't be happy in the, in, in the software industry. So, uh, so I started my journey, uh, trying to figure that out. And for me, it was, it was traveling, which, which really, uh, brought, uh, everything to light for me. Um, I did a, a year solo in Germany, uh, in Berlin, actually in my, in my mid twenties. And, uh, and oddly enough, there was, there was a lot of people, uh, my age from different countries who came to Berlin with the same kind of idea in mind that they would kind of rediscover themselves and, and figure out what they wanted to do. So, so I really think, you know, this is a, this is a common thing for, you know, for people to, to do at different parts throughout their life. Uh, and, and it was, it was there that I kind of, uh, I, you know, I had to work at this, at this software company to make money so I could stay there, but it was here where I started to kind of cultivate my interest in, in, uh, in astronomy originally. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, eventually astrobiology. Yeah, it's interesting what you're saying about Berlin, um, because I've, I've met actually a lot of Germans. I lived in Montreal for three years, and Montreal is pretty, you know, there's a lot of people from Berlin, because it's the kind of same vibe, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of chaotic, artistic, yeah, yeah. you know, cultural totally. vibe. I can totally uh, see that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I can imagine that Berlin definitely, you must have felt more free there, in a way. Yeah, also, uh, free, free and out of my element and, you know, somewhat scared even, uh, it, it was, it was really the first time I had been on my own. Uh, and I was, you know, I was never really tested in that same way before. I didn't speak German when I went there, but I, I worked hard, uh, as soon as I got there to take classes and try and, uh, learn, uh, you know, on a weekly basis. And I really, I just wanted to, yeah, I just wanted to figure things out on my own for the first time. And, and it was, it's kind of crazy, the kind of clarity you can get from just being out of your, out of your comfort zone, out of your kind of day to day life. Uh, you know, for me back in, in, uh, in Calgary, where I was, where I was from. Um, How old were you, Ben? I was, uh, I was 24 when I moved to Berlin. Yeah. Okay. Still pretty young though. I mean, still pretty young. It, it, it's, gr it's good that you had that kind of, um, the ability to kind of reason yeah. <laughs> that it wasn't for you at that age, because I think, you know, for a lot of people, especially in the software industry, because it is such a, a very popular field and, you know, our, 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 the, the, our parents these days, um, you know, they feel like that's the best future prospect for most people is to go into software. So yeah. for you to kind of say, eh, it's not for me, <laughs> it's pretty gutsy. I gotta admit, you know, I it's know. pretty gutsy. I know. I, I really, <laughs> the funny thing is, is, uh, is I've, I've been, it's, I mean, it's been, uh, nearly a year or sorry, 10 years since I, uh, since I was working at that, that software engineering job and I've never made as much money as I made at that first software engineering job. <laughs> so I, you know, I gave up, I gave up uh, a lot financially as well. Um, right. Yeah. So that's, that's also interesting, right? Because you, we do give up a lot financially when we transition into new careers, but do you feel more fulfilled now that you're in, you're in science? Yeah, for sure. My, I mean, my, my, my day-to-day -day life is, is so much better. Um, 
I get to, you know, I get to think about the origins of life every day and, and, uh, and research this and, and it's, and, you know, I get to teach as well. And it's just, it's so much fun and, and I don't get paid too terribly. Like it's, it's not as much as, as, as the software industry, but you know, I'm in my last year of my PhD. So, um, you know, this, this, the grad, the process of grad school, it's kind of like you're paying your dues and then, uh, you know, and then afterwards, once you start doing science full time, then, you know, then you start to get paid uh, a little bit more decently. So, uh, so I also, you know, knowing that it, it's, um, it's, you know, it's not bad at all. Yeah. And you're still fairly young in, in the sense that you can actually enjoy, you know, this new field, like you're still going to have a good 30, 40 years in this field potentially. So that's kind of a totally, good yeah. thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I guess, um, I guess I'm really lucky actually. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, you, you really bring that out. Um, but like, like, I, you know, I'm the, I'm the oldest grad student. I've been the oldest grad student in my program for, um, for almost actually for pretty much the entirety that I've been in grad school. Um, because there's so many people who go, you know, from, from a young age, right into their undergraduate and then right into graduate school. And then, you know, right into doing their PhD and, uh, you know, and that process for them kind of finishes at 27. So it's, uh, it's funny. I'm, I mean, I mean, I'm not a whole lot older, but you know, I'm in my mid thirties now. So it's, uh, but you know, you're making me feel really good about this, <laughs> that I have so I'm, much time. So thank you. <laughs> I'm in my mid forties. You're just a kid to me. So, awesome. yeah. <laughs> um, uh-huh. and I just want to clarify for our listeners that you are doing your PhD at McMaster university out of Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. How do you like, um, how do you like McMaster? How do you like being in Southern Ontario? McMaster is really great. Yeah, it's a it's a really good department. Uh, a lot of really good profs, and and the grad students are really um, we're a really good community, you know. And I'm not sure if that's uh, necessarily the case in every physics department, physics and astronomy department, um, you know, across the globe. But but we are really close, and we're uh, we're a really good community. Uh, and and Hamilton's a nice city. It's uh, I'm I'm really into. Uh, the craft beer scene and Ontario has an excellent craft beer scene. Uh, tons of uh, microbreweries around and, um, and it's just, yeah, it's a nice place. There's a, there's a really great provincial park, Algonquin National Park, not too far away where you, uh, you can go hiking and camping. So I'm i I'm a big fan of this area. Okay. Yeah. I'm originally from Northern Ontario. So I think, I think uh, Hamilton is a little bit, a little bit like Sudbury, but not, I think, because it, it has the advantages of being so close to Toronto as well. So I guess yeah. if you need the big city feel, uh, you can just go to Toronto. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's get into the science, because I'm sure that that's why everybody's going to be listening to this episode, is to talk about the science and to listen, essentially learn a lot about it. Um, so you were recommended to me by an aquatic ecologist uh, out of Nevada, Mar- Marianne Denton. And she said to me immediately, she said, oh, yeah, he's studying the origins of life. And it, I, I didn't even ask her more information. I didn't even research you. I immediately contacted you when I heard that. <laughs> because I was like, the origins of life? That's like the biggest question there is. Oh, I know. Really? It so is. You know, it's uh, when when I'm thinking about you know, when I'm thinking about the biggest kind of questions uh, that interest me the most, it's really, you know, how do we get here uh, and are we alone? And it's like those two, those two questions, it's really just, 
there's there's so much involved in them and and there's so much we don't know it's uh it's it's kind of a big mystery still okay so how did we get here and are we alone do you have any answers to those questions <laughs> i i certainly have some some answers i mean we the, the field has existed for for about a century and people have have made a lot of uh contributions and a lot of progress in trying to you know solve parts of this story so there's things that we know but there's still things that we don't know and and i mean that's the you know that's the case for any field i suppose but uh, i feel like in this case in, in this uh, field in particular you know we're fairly close to understanding how life emerged on earth there's there's really it really boils down to two kind of competing hypotheses right now and researchers who who focus on one or the other are working very hard to kind of fill the knowledge gaps in their that have to do with their hypothesis. Okay, so tell me one. So, for example, you know what? Where did we come from? Do we have? A, a, are you able to? Because it, it's hard for me to form, formulate a question because the thing is, I look through your website real quick, and of course, there's like a link to your publications, and I don't understand any of it because it's not <laughs> plain English. So, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I guess no. I mean, it's not your fault. You're an academic. I mean, that's what you do. But so I guess my question is, do we do we know how life came? And you're saying there's two theories. Can you maybe answer the question yeah, in plain yeah. English? Then maybe tell me about those two theories. Yeah, for sure. So I guess as a little background, uh, when talking about like what like we, we kind of have to define life um, to, in, in order to answer this question, because um, life as we know it. Uh, in every organism on Earth today, is very complicated. It, it involves DNA as your your kind of information, your blueprint to make up you. It involves proteins, and those are the things that kind of carry out all the functions in the body and in every organism. And it involves RNA, which is kind of this. Um, it's kind of like DNA. Uh, it's also an information molecule, but it it has the purpose in life today of copying down the blueprint from DNA and sending it over to the ribosome. And then the ribosome translates this into, into protein so that you can uh, have all these functions occurring in, in the body. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the background of, of life as we know it, but we don't think that that system, you know, DNA, RNA, and proteins, and this complicated genetic code just kind of happened out of the blue. Like it's, it's too complicated. And uh, in Darwinian evolution, we we kind of think about intermediate stages where you can have some sort of uh, intermediate um, system, which is good, but not as good as the end product. So um, we think that first life wasn't DNA, RNA, and proteins, but we think it was just RNA. So just simplify down to this one molecule, which is a is an information molecule, so it can be a blueprint but it can also fold on itself and be like a protein. It can have behaviors that are like proteins. So it's kind of this intermediate uh, in evolution where it's not quite as good as the system we have now, but it's a lot more easy to figure out how to go from, you know, simple organics um, that could be delivered uh, to the early earth by say meteorites or, or produced maybe uh, in the atmosphere all the way to, to RNA. Um, that kind of process is a lot more easy to try and figure out chemically than getting to life as we know it, which is just so much more complex. 
Um, so that's the background. So we're trying to get to RNA. When we're talking about the origin of life, we're actually talking about the origin of, of RNA, which can reproduce, which can uh, replicate itself by, uh, if you can imagine, just a, an information molecule with these, these four different uh, uh, bases. Um, it's A, G, C, and U, um, but you could think of it as just like one, two, three, and four. Uh, these are four numbers, and you can put them in uh, a sequence, and that's a unique piece of information that can be copied. So this RNA can copy itself. And uh, the two hypotheses for figuring out how to get to RNA, how to get to first life on Earth, uh, are either in a warm little pond, and this is something that actually Darwin came up with back in the 1800s, uh, and you know, crazy that it's still something that's, that's very relevant and, and uh, very likely today. Uh, and then the other is hydrothermal vents at the ocean floor two very, very contrasting environments, one on the surface uh, within fresh water and one at the ocean floor in salt water. Um, and these, these two uh, hypotheses have, have kind of uh, very different ways of going about this problem. So, okay, take us back then. So the Earth after, I guess, is it the Big Bang? Uh, for the, for the, well, so that's going way, that's going really far back. Yeah. Like <laughs> at what to, point uh, do we think there was life? Uh, so, so, so the big bang occurred at the, the emergence of the universe, uh, which is 13.8 billion years ago. But, uh, for origins of life, you know, because we, because we only know of life on earth and we know the earth formed about 4.5 billion years ago. Uh, we kind of start, start the story there at the origin of the Earth, as, um, uh, which where where the Earth kind of formed out of all these, you know, boulders and asteroids and rocks, kind of in this disk of dust and gas around the early Sun, and uh, and then it kind of built itself up out of all these uh, these rocky building blocks until it formed this this huge molten sphere, <laughs> and uh, and at that point it was you know it was not a habitable planet yet, but it was it was cooling. And it cooled slowly, and eventually it got to below the melting point of rock, and the, all the rock turned into, you know, nice hard rock, uh, and you had a nice hard surface. And then it cooled more and got to below the boiling point of water. So all the water uh, vapor in the atmosphere rained down and formed the first oceans. And then you had tectonics starting to occur, and then you know continents started to emerge out of the ocean. And on those continents, you could have these these little ponds. Uh, where where fresh water uh, would would uh, would kind of filter filter through, and you could have these ponds wetting and drying, and this is kind of the the really favorable environment for creating RNAs in these in these freshwater ponds uh, that kind of emerged on these continents that emerged out of the ocean. I'm I'm leaving out a little bit of that story actually because there is this huge moon forming impact that occurs at one point too. <laughs> no, but you know what? My mind has just been blown because I actually get it now. <laughs> nice, yes. <laughs> like first of all, I get RNA now because I mean I was already pretty familiar with DNA, but I wasn't mm -hmm. really familiar with RNA. You, the way you explained it really was um, quite succinct for somebody who's not a scientist. So I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. uh, but so. Now, I guess my, my next question is, so billions and billions of years ago, this happens, tectonics happen. How do scientists, is it, is it because, uh, do we study the world the way it is today and we estimate that that's how it was millions and billions of years ago? Is that how you start to piece the, the picture of, of life? 
there's different clues from different kind of facets of uh, different areas of science, actually. So uh, to, to, you know, to go back to the formation of the Earth, uh, for example, we look through telescopes, uh, say the Hubble telescope, for instance, or the Alma tel telescope in Chile, uh, at different stars that are, uh, that are just forming. And we take pictures and we see around them, there's always these disks of dust and gas around them. Uh, so we look at that and we say, okay, well, this, you know, here's evidence of a forming solar system. So this, you know, this could, this makes sense as, as to how our solar system formed, you know, we, out of the same disk of dust and gas. So we can um, use the physics knowledge that we have, stuff like uh, uh, orbital mechanics, which uh, really Isaac Newton came up with. Uh, and we can kind of run a simulation uh, on our computers to make these disks form into planets uh, and try and match them to what we see observationally. So that's kind of an example of where, of how we know that, you know, that kind of part of the story pieced itself together. But there's kind of a more difficult part of the story, which is, is getting from the forming Earth to kind of a habitable planet, because we don't have an example of that. We can't look through a telescope at a you know, a, a, like a, a forming planet, although we do actually have a couple pictures of, uh, of some forming planets, but they're, you know, it's not what you think. It's not like a high definition image where you get to see, you know, a molten magma ocean. It's just a little, you know, it's just a little blotch and uh, doesn't have a whole lot of information. Um, so, so for that, we kind of have to look at the rock record. Um, we have uh, outcrops coming out of places like Australia and Greenland, which have uh, the oldest rocks on earth. And you know they're about 3.9 billion years old, uh, and you know so we know kind of before that everything was really kind of cycling through the uh, uh, through the through subduction through the tectonic plates down into the mantle, and uh, and there's no rocks from before then because there was the cycling was too uh, was too efficient. Um, so that's kind of just a whole bunch of stuff I just threw at you, but uh, but yeah, the the basic kind of moral is is there's kind of different facets, different, we could either look through our telescopes for information of how things may have occurred, uh, or we could look at the rock record, uh, but that's also limited. Yeah, uh, because I, one of my first interviews was with um, uh, Dr. Molina, who is a paleolimnologist. So she studies mm. the history of past lakes through diatom fossils, which is which I found absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, so I imagine that even for this, you would you would have um, sort of a consortium of different science specialties, even archaeologists, perhaps. Yeah, for sure. Astrobiology mm -hmm. has has probably the most kinds of scientists. <laughs> when we when we all gather for meetings, there's biologists, chemists, you know, physicists, astronomers. There's uh, geologists. There's there's uh, you know microbiologists. There's all all sorts of uh, and there's and then there's engineers because there's all these space missions which are which are trying to search for life, uh, and they're building these rovers and uh, you know and then there's even mathematicians who are looking at uh, you know I don't know the the numbers and and I don't know how that life can emerge through through that kind of process in more, a more uh, non-intuitive way. Okay, so are there right now any examples in space that are kind of the closest that we think, you know, uh, of of what the Earth was like millions of years ago? Yes, uh, Titan actually, so Saturn's moon. Um, kind of seems sounds weird to say because it's <laughs> a it's a moon, 
but uh, but oddly, uh, it actually has an atmosphere that is uh, similar in pressure to to the Earth today. It's a it's got about 1.5 times the Earth's uh, atmospheric pressure at its at its surface. And you know what makes it similar to the early Earth is not the temperature because it's actually very cold there. Uh, so cold that methane exists in liquid form in lakes on the on the surface. But uh, but that the uh, gases in the atmosphere would have been similar to what would have been present on the early Earth, which is mostly hydrogen uh, and methane, rather than today, which is uh, is mostly oxygen and and nitrogen. Okay, now I have a new question. Then <laughs> you just kind of like implanted that in me. Um, how does an atmosphere form? Yeah, do you so know there's that? yes, I do, okay, I do, cool. and this is uh, and this is getting more into into what I'm researching right now, actually. Um, so I actually, I, uh, I do atmospheric simulations of, of Titan. Uh, we've done some Titan ones. Um, and now we're doing early Earth uh, simulations as well. But uh, essentially, you have, you, you have your primary atmosphere, which is what you gather from that disk of dust and gas as the planet's forming. But that's not actually the, the atmosphere that, um, that matters as much because uh, because at that point in time, the Earth is molten; it's so hot, and, and you're losing you're losing all these gases too quickly. It's actually the uh, outgassing from volcanoes, uh, and also the the uh, outgassing that occurs when you have a large impact on the surface. For example, uh, if you have an impactor that's iron, uh, made of iron, uh, that iron will interact with water in the atmosphere, and it will produce hydrogen gas. Uh, a lot of it, and there's a lot of impactors on the early Earth. It was hap it was crazy. It was just <laughs> meteorites were bombarding left, right, and center. Uh, you know, bombardment rates were 100 million to 100 billion times more than they are today. So it's it's really it's really hard to imagine what that would be like if you were standing on the surface of the early Earth. You know, you would probably look off uh, on the horizon and see all these streams of impacts all around you uh, <laughs> if it wasn't occurring right over top of you. Yeah, so so uh, that's that's pretty much how you get the 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 original atmosphere, and then uh, and then all the chemistry takes place in the atmosphere from from those major um, molecules that that you that you start with, like hydrogen and methane. Wow! So essentially, you know what I, it just dawned on me when you were talking is that the research that you're doing, you're studying the past, but is there potential for perhaps using this research to create an atmosphere, like for example? on Mars or wherever else, you know, in the future. Yeah, totally. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's perhaps a dangerous, more dangerous game. Uh, but if you were to, uh, for instance, nuke, you know, the North uh, Pole on Mars, um, you would release all this CO2, all this frozen CO2 and frozen water into the atmosphere, which are two of the most potent greenhouse gases. Uh, and that's, that would essentially slowly heat up the atmosphere, but the problem with Mars is that um, it's so light; it's it's a uh, it's not as heavy as as the Earth. It can't hold on to atmospheric gases as as easily as the Earth. So the the solar wind kind of strips them away. Um, so you're kind of you would have to keep doing that. You'd have to you'd have to uh, <laughs> periodically nuke the poles if you want if you wanted to make Mars habitable. Oh my God! So is Elon Musk investing all this money for nothing then? <laughs> Well, I uh, I think I mean I think it's really cool what he's doing, and I, I think he he even knows that people are going to have to live you know in their habitats that they make for themselves for a long time. But uh, 
you know, it's, uh, it's humans are, are, you know, we we're, we're pretty creative, you know, if, if there's a solution to, to, you know, maintain habitability on a planet long-term, then, I mean, I, you know, it might take us a million years, but, <laughs> but I think we can get there. <laughs> yeah. All of this is just, I mean, you know, you gaze up at the sky and all you see are just a few stars, especially if you're, if you're in the city, you don't, you're not going to see much, but then you go out into the country. Like when I go back home in Northern Ontario and I see the Milky Way and I see, you know, all these beautiful stars and sometimes you see a shooting star, you know, mm -hmm. uh, what's it like for you to, to gaze up at the sky now that you know all these things? That's, that's an interesting question. Cause I do, I do love stargaze. Um, and I, you know, I, I had a telescope at one point and would, would spend a lot of time, time on it. Um, and I think actually what I think about mostly when I look up at the stars is, is, uh, you know, is I'm looking for something like I'm looking for Cassiopeia or I'm looking for, uh, you know, I'm looking for the Big Dipper so that I could, you know, guide my eye to the North Star. I, I think I do it more for like kind of the, you know, the kind of constellations and, and kind of amateur astronomer type uh, uh, type things. Um, it's it's when I'm sitting down at my work desk, uh, kind of staring at my laptop uh, or just kind of off in the distance that I'm really thinking about the origin of life. Uh, you know, maybe less so when I'm actually out there in the uh, in the environment. Um, I don't know why that is. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. That's yeah, of course. I guess it would make sense because you're just not in front of it in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. You mentioned earlier the word exoplanet. Um, I've heard it before, but I'm not really sure what it means. Can you explain what an exoplanet is? Totally. Yeah. So we, you know, we have a solar system that has eight planets. Um and some dwarf planets like Pluto. And, uh, you know, we have our star and we all orbit around this, uh, the star, all the planets orbit around the star, but, but we're not unique in the universe. Um, every, uh, every star, pretty much every star out there has at least one or two planets orbiting it. Um, so we call all of these planets that are in different star systems, exoplanets. And, you know, it's been predicted that there are, um, you know, there are, there are maybe on average, we'll say two planets per star, but that's probably an underestimate. Uh, and there's about 400 billion stars in our galaxy, in the Milky Way galaxy. And then there are about a trillion galaxies in the universe. Um, so if you think about, you know, how many planets that is, it's really hard to imagine that we would ever be alone. Well, that was the the next thing I was going to bring up, which is that I'm 44. Well, I'm going to be 44 years old. I think we're going to find life elsewhere before I die. Um, how do you feel about that? I I agree, um, and I think I actually I I actually think it's most likely to happen close to home. Um, so I I think Mars is probably the best shot we have. Uh, to finding life in the next, say, in the next decade or so. Why do you um, think it's Mars? Well, I guess the difficulty with, so if I'm contrasting this with finding life on an exoplanet, uh, the, difficulty, the difficulty of finding life on an exoplanet is that you have to use biosignature uh, gases. And, you know, that's looking at the atmospheric composition. And we have, we have telescopes that are capable of this, and there's a big one going up. Uh, next year, the James Webb Space Telescope, which will 
do a really good job at, at, at getting the exact atmospheric composition of, of these exoplanets. Uh, and, you know, if we see some signatures, maybe a lot of oxygen, like on Earth, uh, where, where most of the oxygen is made by, uh, well, actually by diatoms. So linking back to your, <laughs> to your other uh, uh, interview. Um, or, you know, a lot of methane, and there's a lot of methane produced by life on Earth. Uh, or maybe phosphine, which is this new exciting exo, exoplanet gas um, that was found on Venus, uh, which you know may suggest that there's actually life in the clouds on Venus. Um, so, so it's you know we have to rely on these gases, and it's really hard to be conclusive about that. You know, there's a lot of skepticism in science. Um, that's kind of the name of the game. You know, we we write these papers, we do the science, and then we we go to peer review. And our peers say, mm, okay, maybe, you know, maybe this is the case, but, you know, more data is needed, more, uh, more observations are needed. You need to, you know, really make sure that this is what you think it is. Uh, so I think it's more likely on Mars where you can actually go there with either a rover or maybe even an astronaut, take a sample, you know, look under the microscope or put it through a, a mass spectrometry or some, some instrument which can give you the composition um, to, to be more conclusive when it's right there in front of you. Yeah, and I think we can pretty much confirm, at least by now, that there are no, like, aliens the way that we see them in science fiction on Mars. I think if we find life on Mars, it would just be probably like a molecule or something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. It's the... the uh... Little green men <laughs> is uh, is not is not the way that it's likely life likely exists in the universe, but rather it's if life does exist uh, and it's pervasive throughout the throughout the galaxy. Say it's probably mostly bacteria, both mostly microorganisms. So you're a member of the scientific community that's studying this. What would happen if we did find, let's say, a new bacteria on Mars? Like, what what's the first thing that would happen in the scientific community? Oh. That would be amazing. That would be the best day ever. <laughs> uh, but it would also be met with uh, with great scrutiny. <laughs> uh, I mean, hopefully before, um, yeah, probably before it gets announced, it would go through the peer review process. So it would it would already have gone through one layer of, of scientific scrutiny to make sure, yes, we agree this is a detection of life. Um, but once once that occurs, you know, it's going to get there in the media and people are, are going to go crazy because that's, you know, it'll for the first time we will have evidence that we aren't alone, that that life isn't unique to Earth. And that is such a such a big, huge philosophical, uh, you know, conundrum. It, it's it's uh, it, it'll change our perspective. It'll change our perspective of what it means to be living. Uh, if life could exist on Mars, then then it's probably pervasive throughout the galaxy because Mars isn't even that habitable of a place. <laughs> uh, so right. that would be crazy. Yeah, I think that, I mean, the, there's, like you said, you know, there's the impact in the science community, then there's the impact in the global media, um, religious communities, mm -hmm. uh, and then we're looking at, you know, medical communities as well. I mean, what does it mean to introduce a foreign bacteria, uh, potentially, I mean, I'm sure it would be completely safeguarded, yes, I would yeah. hope, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> yeah. what is the, you know, what's the potential? And then we have private space enterprises that are going to be taking off and doing their thing. So I think there's a lot of questions and a lot of ethics um, to observe in regards to life on other planets. Totally. Yeah, there's a, 
there's kind of a facet of, of astrobiology um, uh, called planetary protection. And, and this is where they, they really think through these questions. And, and this is actually one of the reasons why there's certain places on Mars that are kind of off limits for, uh, for, for even rovers. Um, because rovers are not sterilized to, you know, to infinity. They're, they're, it's really hard to sterilize something to the point where there's actually zero bacteria on it. It's, you may get down to, you know, very, very small amounts, but um, all the rovers we've sent to Mars have some level of, of life on them. And it's just really, you know, they, they can't really survive in those conditions. So it's, it's, a, it's not really a big worry, but um, there are certain areas like the South Pole of Mars where there's subsurface lakes that uh, they are just not allowed to go to because the, the fear of contaminating that area with, with human life uh, or destroying the habitat of, of life that already exists there um, that are, you know, too big of questions to, to, uh, to just let someone go there. Um, well, I, yeah. I hadn't even thought about that. That's, that's, that's really fascinating. Is it possible that, so I, I, I do live streaming on Twitch with my microscope mm -hmm. and I show the world, you know, tardigrades. Tardigrades are such a, a big popular thing these days. So I show them live tardigrades. And one of the questions that, that comes up a lot is, is it possible that tardigrades are from a different place? Like they came to earth on comets mm -hmm. or something, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure you've heard questions like that before. So is it possible that we've already had life introduced to earth um through comets or meteorites yes the the kind of panspermia hypothesis i think uh i think there are there are a couple of ways of thinking about this there's there's kind of like geopanspermia which is you know let's let's are we are we transferring life from earth to mars and from you know earth to venus and venus to earth and mars to earth and i think the answer for that is is absolutely we are because we have meteorites, uh, Martian meteorites on the surface of the earth. So we know that if there's a big impact on Mars that it can send projectiles in our direction and vice versa. I'm, I'm certain that there are, you know, earth meteorites on Mars. Uh, and, you know, life is, is, is streaming throughout, throughout soil and, and rocks and, and is very possible uh, that tardigrades themselves uh, which are, you know, which are everywhere in, in water, uh, in different water sources, uh, could also be within these rocks and be sent, say, to Mars uh, or vice versa. But it's really hard to uh, to prove that that that's, you know, how life emerged, say, on the Earth. And and all that's kind of saying is that well, now you have to figure out how life emerged on Mars. Or um, if you find life on on Mars, you know, we still have to figure out how life emerged on Earth because it's uh, it maybe was delivered there. But then there's the yeah. idea of, of getting it from a different solar system, you know, from like an exoplanet. Um, and I think that's, that's much more unlikely. Because if you were to find, if they were to find a tardigrade on Mars, they would have to first prove that they didn't introduce it there, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. okay. That would be, unfortunately, like that would be somewhat disappointing because yeah, because that does suggest that a maybe you just brought it there, like maybe even just brought it there that day, <laughs> uh, or 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 b maybe it was you know um, actually if it was if it was a species of tardigrade that is on Earth today that you know that would probably be the likely uh, conclusion of that of that uh, of that work, but maybe okay. 
if it was a species of tardigrade that was never discovered on Earth, and it can be shown that it uh, evolved on Mars, you know, say say uh, say a, a very early species of tardigrade, uh, you know, was was transported to Mars, uh, you know, say a hundred million years ago, and and evolved in the cold, salty, arid conditions of Mars uh, into this new species of tardigrade. That would be exciting. Um, yeah, that would be much more exciting. Yeah, I'd be I'd be super stoked <laughs> about that <laughs> for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I want to put science aside for a minute here, kind of, sure. because I I really enjoy your website. Oh, thank you. I just, I just wanted to mention that because I what it. I like is when scientists and I know I know there's a big push right now, and I know a lot of scientists aren't happy about it, but there's a big push for science communication right now. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of disinformation out there, so it makes sense. I understand, but I think sometimes it's nicer when. When it's the scientists themselves that come up with the idea. Now, in your case, did you come up with the idea of creating your own website? Uh, no, actually. Oh. I, <laughs> I mean, I I went to a I went to a career um, kind of uh, workshop uh, at a conference, and I was a master's student. And basically, I was like, "Is it too early for me to have a you know have a professional website as a as a scientist?" and she was like, no, absolutely, you should have a website, build it tomorrow. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I got to work and I, you know, I, I kind of realized that, uh, you know, in science, we, uh, we, we kind of have to ask for funding throughout our entire careers. So you really need to uh, be a good science communicator in order to, in order to get that funding. You know, you have to convince the public, you have to convince uh, agencies that your science is worth funding. So. Okay. Um, and now yeah. communication is a part of that. Yeah, it's a huge part of that. Yeah. Not only, yeah, and th- I mean that's that that's one that's one important reason, but also, you know, getting getting science out to the public is uh is 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 also key. You you don't want to keep all your science to yourself, you know, that's that's no fun. You want to share it to uh with everyone else. Yeah, especially in the age of flat earthers. <laughs> yeah, who still exist somehow. That's yeah. It is, uh, it is interesting to me. I, I find it more than anything, I find it fascinating, to be honest with you. I, I, I pose no judgment on anybody who believes in that, but I do find it fascinating. I find, um, I find it fascinating that science hasn't necessarily figured out a way yet to actually communicate itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just beginning, which is, which is fun, which is, which is good. And it's fun that you have a website and that you have a blog and that not only do you talk about science on your website you also talk about your hobbies and interests which again it makes you look less like you're part of like an ivory tower kind of system <laughs> you know which is yeah. important yeah yeah totally it's very important yeah i'm a, uh, I'm a yeah, huge believer in in uh you know in in not just doing science you know like i i i, I very much cherish my weekends and my evenings for for my hobbies and for and for doing much other things. And, you know, I, I do my work during the week and I, I love this, I love time off. And I actually think it's, it's necessary just for, just for general happiness to kind of not only, only be thinking about one thing all the time, but just to give your, give your brain a break. Yeah. And you're dealing with really big questions and, and this kind of research, I mean, it is a, it is very much an obsession for a lot of people, whether you're an artist or a scientist, you're constantly obsessing about problems and solutions and kind of like being a software engineer, I guess. But in this case, you're really 
you know, having fun doing it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what do you do with your free time? What's your, what's your gig? What's your hobby? I've got a few. Uh, I, I think the, the, the hobby that I'm doing a lot of right now, or I guess the two major hobbies I'm doing a lot of right now is, is brewing beer and, uh, and rock climbing. Um, ah. yeah. So I, I, I like the rock climbing to, to kind of get some exercise in, in a fun way. <laughs> And, uh, and I like, I like beer brewing for kind of the creative aspect, um, cause it gives me an opportunity to build a recipe and, uh, and kind of, uh, explore different kinds of yeasts and different kinds of hops and, uh, and even different grains and just, uh, you know, see if I can make something that is unique and, and, and delicious. Do you know Dr. Brian Height out of, uh, Western? Uh, I does not ring a bell. I should know. Okay. I should know because Western's so close to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I only bring him up because he he's a he's huge into that scene and uh, like most you know Ontarians, yeah. I guess. <laughs> but he uh, he was on the podcast. He's an immunologist, so oh, yeah. uh, maybe I'll put you guys in touch. But he's he's going to send me some yeast to look at under the microscope. Oh, cool. So, yeah, that's yeah, gonna yeah. be fun. It's gonna be fun. But oh, I, I want to do I, that. I'm gonna. I can. I want to tune into that Twitch actually because <laughs> I, I have never looked at yeast under a microscope. I don't know. I, I don't own a microscope, but I now I kind of want to buy one. <laughs> oh, you totally should. Totally. We'll talk after this. But uh, so beer. I mean, see, I don't drink beer, so it's very hard for me to even ask questions about it because I don't know a lot about beer. Mm -hmm. But I do know that it is. It really does become an obsession for a lot of people, and like mm -hmm. you said, in Ontario, it's a big thing right now is craft beer so how did you get into craft beer why do you do it and what's your favorite kind of beer uh okay i i how did i get into it i i think i had a friend actually who i heard brewed beer and i was just so fascinated that you could do that <laughs> i just i mean it just seemed so i don't know uh so professional, like I knew breweries did it, but I couldn't imagine people could do it in their own homes. And he kind of helped me uh, with my with uh, with buying the necessary equipment, uh, with setting up me up with my first batch. And after doing that, I was kind of just hooked. After that, I just it was so much fun to brew that beer and and actually have this end product that was tasty and that was you know just something I couldn't fathom making myself that that involved. That involved fermentation, you know, in this in this big vessel over a couple of weeks, and and uh, it was just and then carbonation after that it was it was just such a fascinating uh, new experience for me, uh, and the process of learning because uh, I love to learn. I mean, I think uh, I think most people who who do their PhD are 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 big fans of learning. Uh, so you know, just giving given gotten the opportunity to to learn how to do it, uh, that really just just hooked me. Um, and my favorite beer uh, right now actually is uh, is probably a probably a Kolsch, which is like a uh, it's like a lager uh, that they brew in Cologne in, in Germany, kind of exclusively. Uh, but Ontario makes a lot of kind of clones of this type of beer. <laughs> okay, so that makes a lot of sense. So I guess there's links between your beer brewing and your time in Germany. That's, you know, yeah, that's, uh, I think I probably one of the reasons why I was, was so, you know, attracted to choosing Berlin as kind of my, my travel destination 
was because I love drinking beer and I just knew, you know, stereotypically <laughs> that Germans love beer. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I mean, seems like a pretty good place to me. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that was my, one of my major uh, reasons for going there. And, and uh, when I went there, yeah, I, I, I tried a lot of their beer and it's, oh, it's fantastic over there. It's interesting because I don't, you know, a lot of people who listen to this podcast, they say to me, you know, I really like that you get to know the scientists, you know, because, because <laughs> uh, you're not just presenting the hard facts and, and we're presenting actual people. At the end of the day, you're still a human being with uh, varied interests, uh, one of which is also hot sauces. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What's that all about? Yeah, I, I love spicy food, you know, all sorts of spicy food. And it's it's just, it's so enjoyable. Like just, to, uh, I love the like bite from capsaicin. It's just, it's so, I don't know why, but it's just so enjoyable to eat a really spicy meal for me. And a lot of people think I'm crazy. I put, um, for breakfast, uh, you know, most mornings, uh, I'll have a bagel and I'll put peanut butter on it. And then I'll have sriracha and I'll just pour, <laughs> I'll pour that on top of my breakfast bagel. And it's, uh, you know, it's so good. And I, I just, uh, I love that bite. I love uh, all sorts of hot sauces, you know, all sorts of uh, spicy peppers. It's just kind of like, yeah, it's just something I really enjoy. Yeah, I think you're weird. <laughs> <laughs> you're not alone in thinking that. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, but I'm curious now because did you grow up with parents who um, also enjoyed hot sauce? Because I have a bit of a theory, which is that if you grew up with a a very bland kind of Canadian diet, meat and potatoes, um, you're probably not going to like hot sauce. So I'm curious, what was your food like when you were growing up? Oh, that is interesting. I would say that uh, that actually, you know, my mother cooked mostly, you know, fairly basic Canadian meals, which did not have any spice in them. Uh, however, uh, you know, my parents are separated and my dad ended up marrying a Filipino woman who really brought spice in uh, into that home? So, so maybe, yeah, maybe a little bit later on, probably in my uh, in my mid-teens, I started actually incorporating spice into my meals. But uh, but at an early age, not so much. It's science. Yeah, I'm telling you. <laughs> something to do You're with improved. early. Yeah, <laughs> there's something to do with early introduction to spice because everybody I've ever met who enjoys spicy foods. We're introduced to it some sometime either in their childhood or as a teenager. Usually starts with like a basic, you know, hot sauce, um, mm -hmm. you know. And I've just started introducing it in my thirties. So, Ooh. and it's still taking me a l really long time. Like I think the only brand I really enjoy now is I think it's pronounced Cholula. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. The, the very basic. Yeah, yeah. But it's 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 good for people who don't have that that kind of tendency like you do. You yeah, know? it's 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 a nice, just you know, mild kind of hot sauce. Kind of uh, has a good flavor to it too. Uh, for I like it on Indian dishes. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it definitely it tastes good. So that's why I still consume it. But I think it's a it's a very unique, <laughs> it's a unique perspective to to put hot sauce on your breakfast. Foods. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I always tell people like, don't knock it until you try it. <laughs> but that only really is valid for people who like really like hot sauce. <laughs> true, true. Yeah. <laughs> Have you thought about uh, because you create beer? It, is it possible to create um, hot sauce at home? Uh, yeah, I've definitely made uh, I've definitely made hot sauce before. Um, 
only I've only made one type, so it's a, a vinegar-based sauce. Um, but I have uh, friends who have gardens. I don't have a garden anymore, sadly. Otherwise, I would definitely grow my own peppers. But uh, I have friends who have gardens and, and grow peppers, and I just I make sure that they at the at at harvesting uh, season kind of give me a, a bunch so that I can make a bunch of hot sauce and share it with everyone. And the one I made this year was. Uh, the peppers themselves, I have no idea what they were, and the guy didn't know either because he, he just kind of picked up a bunch of seeds uh, and didn't hold on to the, uh, to the to the names. But uh, I added ginger, so it was a ginger-based uh, hot sauce, and it turned out really well. Yeah, people enjoyed okay. it. Did you name it after something in space? Oh, what did I call it? Ginger. No, I I I, I didn't name it off something in space. Um, I don't remember the name though. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so what is uh, what what is next after you're done your PhD? What is what is the ultimate kind of job or the ultimate thing that you want to be doing? Uh, so right now I am I'm in the last year of my PhD, so I'm applying for jobs right now. Actually, uh, the the kind of season of applying for for postdocs uh, is 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 right now. Um, and kind of finishes uh, when the new year kind of comes in. Uh, offers start to get, be put out in, in February. Uh, so I'm I'm most interested right now in continuing this science, uh, and I'm really interested in to moving into kind of experimental research, uh, so that we can kind of test out our hypotheses uh, in the lab. You know, kind of fill a reaction chamber with these atmospheric gases and try and um, you know simulate the process from an atmosphere all the way to RNA. Uh, so I just kind of want to keep doing the science. You know, it's it's what I it's what I came here to do. It's what I uh, spent all this time, you know, educating myself in this in this field and doing this research. And I just want to keep doing it. And you know, I, I guess the natural progression from there is to uh, is to become a professor and to kind of start your own research group uh, and continue doing that research uh, through that way. So um, I'll see if I can uh, if I can if I can do that. That's interesting. Uh, have you considered maybe working for a space agency or like a SpaceX kind of thing? Yeah, I definitely have. I, I, I definitely love, <laughs> I definitely love the space sector too. And I have thought to myself, you know, if I, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll probably try academia first and, and see, um, see if I get a lot of momentum there. But, uh, but if not, like I, I would be very happy uh, working for a space agency as well. Um, SpaceX, I know, I, I don't think that they hire internationally because I, I, I think there's something about the fact that they're working with rockets that's, um, <laughs> that's kind of like national security-ish, um, but, uh, but maybe another, you know, maybe another space company. I would love to work for SpaceX because they're, you know, they're the ones most likely to go to Mars uh, first, but I'm not sure if I can. Yeah, I bet. I mean, there's always potential for other competitors, but I think, like you said, the first ones are probably going to be SpaceX, um, and I don't, I don't think it's going to be a governmental organization. I think it's going to be a private industry endeavor. Yeah, I agree, definitely. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it's been fun, Ben. I, uh, I feel more excited than I did yesterday about space, and I'm glad. definitely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I would love to to talk to you again, just because uh, I know there's a lot of stuff that's going to be happening over the next year or so. I think there's a like you said, the new telescope is going out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
and yeah. there's a few uh like mars there's a mars mission isn't there yeah yeah there's uh there's there's actually two mars missions uh kind of happening simultaneously one from the european space agency and one from nasa um so yeah a lot of mars stuff going on right now Okay, so last question then is, uh, what do you recommend to someone who wants to learn more about astrobiology and the origins of life? Do you have like a favorite book or a favorite documentary or something? Ooh, uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, there are a lot, a lot of different resources out there. Uh, looking at the the uh, NASA Astrobiology uh, Center uh, is a really good resource. Um, there's a lot of good YouTube videos out there as well uh, on the origins of life. Uh, and I know there's certain YouTubers like David Kipping, for instance, who has a, a cool wor worlds channel and he's a really great science communicator. Uh, so that's a good resource. There's a lot of people on, uh, on Twitter um, who tweet a lot about, about astrobiology. Uh, you know, people like uh, planet doctor, uh, Sarah Hurst uh, and, um, there's some other prominent astrologists. I don't know, my mind's kind of blanking right now. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, there's there's definitely on YouTube. There's definitely a lot of resources out there if you uh, you know if you type in astrobiology and uh, and and are interested. Okay, yeah. As always, there's always stuff online, but it's always good to ask the es the experts who they recommend uh, as legit sources of information. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, thank you very much. I wish you the best of luck wrapping up this PhD and into your thank postdoc. You. I appreciate it, Julie. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.